Or do you not know, brothers? For I speak to those who know the law, that the law has dominion over a man as long as he lives. For the woman who has a husband is bound by the law to her husband as long as he lives. But if the husband dies, she's released from the law of her husband. So then, if while her husband lives, she marries another man, she'll be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law, so that she is no longer no adulteress, though she has married another man. Therefore, my brethren, you also have become dead to the law through the body of Christ, that you may be married to another, to him who was raised from the dead, that we should bear fruit to God. For when we were in the flesh... The sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit to death. But now we have been delivered from the law, having died to what we were held by, so that we should serve in newness of the Spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. Paul says here, or do you not know? You see that? The very or do you not know? Which basically means you don't know. <laughs> There's something that you have not taken into account or you seem to have forgotten. Are you ignorant of is kind of what he's saying, which means they are somewhat ignorant of what it is that he's going to share. He's in that phrase, or he is referring to something that he's already been talking to. He's referring them back to something that he said or that he's been arguing, and maybe they're somewhat confused about it. They're not entirely convinced by what he's saying, and so there's more that he has to say on the topic. It really brings us back to Romans 6.14. Keeping your Bibles open, just read there, Romans 6.14. There, Paul says, For sin shall not have dominion over you. The word there is, it shall not lord itself over you. For you are not under the law, but under grace. Now that's kind of an interesting statement because he says sin shall not lord it over you. And then you think for you're not under sin, but you're under grace. But he says you're not under the law, but you're under grace. And now he said something very similar to that here in verse 1 of chapter 7. He says the law has dominion over a man as long as he lives. That is the law lords it over a man as long as he lives. And this dominion, this domination that the law holds against the individual seems to be something that, and this is what Paul is going to make, is not a dominion or domination that it holds over the Christian individual. Something has changed. So Paul is differentiating between how the law is experienced by the unbeliever or the unsaved person and how the law is to be experienced by the believer, by the saved person. And there is a bit of a problem here. The problem is the saved people he's writing to are coming before the law like unbelievers too often. And they're not experiencing and they're not living in the liberty or the removal of this domination of the law over their lives. But first, let's just for a moment think about how the law is experienced by the unbeliever. And I think, now this is the argument Paul will make all through the beginning of the book of Romans. And you'll see this over and over again because he addresses the law on a number of different occasions. And in this passage, he's really going to take up the argument of the law. In fact, in the first 14 verses, the law is referred to in every single verse of the first 14 verses. And over this chapter, 35 times, Paul will reference the law. So it's something that he's, it's the main thing he's dealing with and the right approach and the right understanding of the law. But prior to this, he's pointed out that the law is completely incapable of bringing a person into salvation. In fact, what the law does is it simply reveals to the individual that they're sinners. And not only that, the law comes to them with its commands and it aggravates within them more sinfulness. 
First, what they do is they try to be righteous by the law. They try to prove themselves to somehow be deserving, morally deserving. But as they find the difficulty and their lack of growing ground in that way, they begin to resent the law. And so they kind of yo-yo between two activities that you'll see him talk about. They yo-yo between using the law as a way of establishing their own self-righteousness, which doesn't work, to going back to rebanding the law, rebelling against the law, and resenting the law, and pursuing their own self-pleasing. In all of this, the law continues to come about upon them, voicing its judgment and condemnation on them, it declaring them unfit. That's the relationship they have with the law. No matter how much they might strive after it and how much at times they want to prove that they're a good person, the law keeps coming back to them saying, unfit, unfit, unrighteous. And then when they rebel against it and they resist it and they turn from it, which is in their nature, that's why they can't somehow fulfill the righteousness of the law, the law comes back again, unfit, under judgment, under judgment. Even if all you're doing is following the rules, the moral law that you've established for yourself about how you think you're supposed to live, the truth is sometimes you take those principles and those rules for yourself and at times you feel kind of righteous. You feel better than other people because you would, how would, how would I would never do what they do and you feel good about yourself, but honestly, most days your own laws you think, oh, I'm unfit. I don't need to keep my own rules. I fail at my own laws. And so much more the law of a holy God and the commands of a holy God. And so ultimately, it lays over you this sense of your own disease and your own unfitfulness and your own sinfulness and your deserving of judgment. Yes, of judgment and even of your deserving of God's wrath being poured out upon you. That's the experience and that's the encounter you have with the law. You can go to any place in the world, any religion in the world, and the law is simply the basis by which they seek to gain their own righteousness and at the same time they impose the law as a cultural repression against the most sinful impulses of people. It's to hold down the people and at the same time they think that thing that's holding down their sinful impulses to it, they're going to rise up to heaven and it doesn't work. It just holds them down. I'm glad for it. You'd have chaos if it wasn't there. But it doesn't get to heaven, and it's this mantle over them that holds down their sinful impulses. That's the nature of the way in which the unsaved person encounters the law. They're under that lordship. They're under that domination. Don't you know this, Paul's saying? Don't you realize that? That's how it is. Now, Paul says, but for the Christian, it's completely different. Something's changed. As to the condemnation that it speaks against you and the judgment it speaks against you, now you've come to understand that there's one who's come who's lived a sinless life and he's died in your place and he's bore the punishment of the judgment of that sin against you and he lived a perfect and sinless life and he gives to you by your faith in him his complete righteousness so the law doesn't speak condemnation against you because your righteousness is found in him. And not only that, it comes to you and it changes your nature. Something in your nature is turned because this one lives in you and he gives you a divine impulse to please him. In other words, the law is not just repressing your worst impulses. Now the law comes inviting you into the life you want to live, into the person you want to know, and the experiences you want to rise in and you delight in it because your heart is for it. And, and not only that, it's, it's not repressing those instincts you can't control, but the law comes to the believer and it's stirring up within them the divine life and impulses they have because they've been born again in Jesus Christ. And it's saying, not you shouldn't do that and you shouldn't do that, but come and do this and come and do this. It's a change. It's a complete change. 
from that mantle and that oppression to this experience of liberty, of life. It justifies us. We've been justified and we've been made new and we've been regenerated and we have this whole new relationship to the law that we never had before. A relationship in which we're not tying ourselves to the law, but instead we're bound up in the lawgiver and we have a relationship with him and life with him. And as a result, we are not seeking independence from God, which is the heart of sinful man, but we are seeking to know God and experience God and enjoy God. And we find in the law a place where we can know him and enjoy him and experience him like never before. We love it. That's the impulse of the believer. Now, We've talked about this before. Paul talks about this earlier. You'll see this as we progress on into this chapter. That's what happens in the believer because his spirit and his life has changed. But this redeemed spirit that we have still resides in an unredeemed body. And our flesh still has an appetite for those old ways. And it still has habits that pick up the pattern of those old ways. And Paul is correcting that pattern and that appetite and that habit because it's still expressing itself in the life of the believer. Although they have this position, at times they seem to live under the same pattern, the same ideas, and the same thinking as the unbeliever and as the unsaved person. So Paul has to address this. So he says here, or do you not know brethren? You see that word brethren there? Or do you not know brethren? Now this is the second time that Paul uses the word brethren. He used it when he first began his letter. And then after that, Paul engages in a diatribe. We've talked about this. This is like a conversation that Paul is having where he's sharing the gospel. So when he first introduces himself to the Christians in Rome, he writes them as brothers. And then as he turns from that, he begins to lay out before them the story of the gospel. And he imagines himself in this diatribe or conversation in which he's holding with a number of people at the table. So there's the pagan idolater, and then there's the moralistic Greek, and then there's the religious law-abiding Jew, and there's the Christian, but he's really addressing these three others, the pagan and the moralistic Greek and the legalistic Jew, in this conversation. The Christian is listening in to how he's engaging them in order to share with them the wonderful truths of the gospel. But now in chapter 7, he goes back and he turns to the Christian at the table, you might say to us, and says, now, or do you not know brethren? And now he's taking what he's been talking about, and he's really pointedly applying it to us and our lives. He's underscoring some things that they need to hear. Paul's going to talk about the law for the believer in three ways. In the first six verses of Romans 7 here, he's going to talk about a new relationship that ends the law's domination over our lives. In verses 7 through 12, he's going to address the benefits and the value of the law in our lives. And then In the last half, in verses 13 through 25, he's going to explain the ongoing conflicts and the limitation that the law has, even in the life of the believer. And we'll have to look at these one at a time, but this morning I just want to talk about this first point, this new relationship that ends the law's domination in our life. And so here's the first thing Paul wants them to see. By the way, when he says to them, brethren, not only is he addressing the believer pointedly and all that he said, he's bringing it to the, a point of application in life, but there's tenderness in it. There's a sense of gentleness in what he's saying and how he's addressing them. Now, here's the first thing I want you to see. The first thing we see here is that a death has occurred that ends a relationship. A death has occurred that ends a relationship. And Paul uses an illustration of a woman 
who's bound to her husband while he lives, but if he dies, she's set free from that husband to get remarried. She's no longer the man's wife, she's his widow. And as a result, if she should choose, she's free to get married again and there's nothing wrong with them. Paul is simply making a legal point here that death ends a legal bond, that death ends a legal bond. And, and, and actually, that's probably the best way to approach the illustration that Paul is using here, because if you try to make it too much of an allegory, or you try to make it an analogy where you're trying to find everything lines up in what he says, it's hard to line it up, and you'll find different commentators come to this passage, and they're all arguing about who it is that died, and who it is that didn't die, and what died, and what died to what, and it gets quite confusing. But just keep in mind this, that he's giving you an illustration that says that death ends a legal bond. And from that simple illustration, Paul is going to say that death has ended our bond, our connection to the law. Remember now, the law reveals that we're sinners. It speaks that we're under judgment. It establishes a standard of righteousness that we have no power to attain to in our own efforts, in our own life. It exposes our sinful natures and it actually aggravates that sinful nature. I don't know if you know this with your children, but you always have to kind of figure out when you want to tell them certain rules because you know if you tell them certain rules, instead of turning them away from bad behavior, it'll turn into it. They'll think, well, now they're fixated on that thing. Now they want to do the thing that you said they're not supposed to do. And so if they don't know it, you don't say, now listen, I don't want you to eat any of the cookies in the cookie jar. Now what have you just done? You've just put in their mind there's cookies in the cookie jar and they want to eat it. And so you've almost tempted them. Well, the law kind of does that. It exposes this independent instinct within us to turn away from God. It's kind of the influence that law has on us as well. In fact, Romans 7 verse 5 says that. For when we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear the fruit of death. What is that? All the law did was show us a righteous standard we couldn't measure up to. We pursued it, and when we failed, we ran away from it, and so we juxtaposed ourselves, and we bounced back between using the law as a way of finding ourselves and establishing our own self-righteousness, and then turning from the law and turning from it in a pursuit of our own self-pleasing, and all it did was bring condemnation over us, and no matter what we did, it just continued to voice this, we're unfit, we're unfit, we're unfit. That's the relationship they had. And all this, the law was simply exposing our wretched, weak, sinful life. Now, what a burden that is. Writing us, calling from us what our nature really is, revealing to us that there's something in our nature that is unwilling to give the one thing that God is looking from us above everything else, which is to love Him with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Unwilling to give Him what God really wants above everything else, which is a heart completely surrendered to the lawgiver in love of Him because we're committed to and we're bound up in our own self-love. That's how we live. That's how it was. But then we were saved by grace through Jesus Christ. And when we put our faith in Jesus Christ and when we claimed Him as our Savior, we claimed His death on our behalf and we claimed His resurrection to new life on our behalf. Not only on our behalf, we claimed His death as our own death. And we claimed His life as our own life. With Christ, we died. We died to the sentence of the law. We died to the oppression of the law. We died to the declaration of our unfitness in the law. And then in Christ, we rose in the fitness and in the majesty and in the glory and in the righteousness of Christ himself to live for him and to live by his grace, to live by his power. And we're no longer 
bound to live under the law in that way. And since we're no longer bound to live under the condemnation that was voiced, it went out from Adam and all those who were born in Adam. We're no longer under the marriage of self and sin, bound to our own self and sin. We're no longer interacting with the law as a judge and as a standard that we tried to pay off with our own best efforts, but continually failed at. No, now we're in a new relationship. We've died to that. We've died to it. And we have a new relationship where we're bound to another, to Jesus Christ. So this is the second point. It's this. We are married to Jesus Christ. The old man or nature having died in Christ, having now been raised in Christ, is brought into union with Christ. And the language is clear here, folks. It's we are married to Christ. We're not married to Adam. We're not married to the old man we were. We're not in that dominating relationship with the law. However you want to look at it, we have now a relationship to the law that has been done away with, that one that we had before, because now we're not, we're not bound up in a relationship to the law. Instead, we're bound up in a relationship to the lawgiver. We're married to him. We're not engaging the law first anymore. We're engaging him first. Our love starts with a love for the one who gives the law and sets the standard for the law, the Holy One, and we're married to. There is no more sublime earthly relationship to be found than in a good marriage. Now there's no more horrible relationship to be found in a contentious marriage. You know, the joke is that God gave marriage so that we wouldn't fight with strangers, but that's not the... That's just a joke. God gave marriage in order that he might demonstrate how two could become one flesh, how their lives could be commingled together in a depth of commitment and surrender and in acts of love and selflessness, which it's hard to see where one life ends and the other begins. That's marriage. It's wonderful. It's profound. and It's bound up in Jesus Christ. When Paul says, my brothers, or brothers here, when he speaks to them in this tender way, it's because he's getting ready to communicate to them a great mystery of faith that can't be expressed by just snappy logic. It can't be expressed by harsh and strong language and words. It can't be expressed by just parsing the language here. He's delving into a mystery. He's delving into something that has to be communicated with gentle and tender words that cause people to bow their heads in contemplation. It's a mystery. It's profound. It is a mystery. I may have told you, but I've got a shelf full of just books of commentaries from different authors and Romans. And, you know, once I get in the pattern of beginning to teach on Romans, I, at some point in time, I don't refer to all of them. It would take too much of my time, but... I'll tell you, in preparation to talk about this, I read them all. I wanted to see what they were saying. I wanted to see what their view was because there's so many parts of this verse that are quite technical and quite hard to hold together and understand. And as you read on, it can get even more confusing. The interesting thing is, in these commentaries, they pick up all these ancillary issues of talking about, you know, who is the one that she was married to before and who dies and is it the woman who dies or is it the old man who dies and What's the division? And they're trying to parse all these things out. And there's a debate in all of them going over it and discussing it. And then they just jump over the statement that says we're married to another. They hardly even refer it. Well, this is probably just referring to the fact that Christ and the church are 
in some way referred to as an example of being bound together. But they just skip right over it. And yet that's the whole point. You've died to all these things that you may be married to another. And I don't know why they skip it. When we come to this passage, we have to pause and recognize that this is a profound mystery. He says, brothers, my brethren, you've been married to another. He's evoking, he's saying something that's evocative, that's to bring to the mind something profound and mysterious and wonderful. And You know, in a good marriage, you can't explain why it's a good marriage. Someone came to me and said, now, do you think you have a good marriage? Yeah, I think I have a great marriage. Why? Why is it good? Why is it good? I couldn't explain to them. There's something about it that's mysterious. I do know that something changed in my life, and that is that we began to live a relationship with one another where we began to do things for one another. There was a division of labor even the way we lived together, but it's not like this. Well, if you're not going to do it, then I guess I'll have to do it. That's doing it instead of the other person, right? No, we did it for one another. However the division of labor came out, we were filling in the gaps for one another. It was as if we were just working together to live out our lives. and There wasn't some negotiation. I'll do this for you, and then you do this for me. I'll behave in this way, and then I'll get that from you. And No, as it grew and it matured, and as it became what God intended to be, that began to be dismissed and put out of the way. And it just became something in which we did things together and we did things for one another. And, but actually, I don't know if I could explain to you what makes a marriage a good marriage. I don't know how I would begin to describe it. I know I have a good marriage. I have a thought that maybe those in a good marriage have had. I don't know how I could ever live without this person. We know the day is coming, very likely, when one of us is going to depart from the other. And we accept that the Bible says there's no giving or taking of marriage in heaven. And although at sometimes it, we want to rebel against that, we know that's what the Word says. And, but I don't know how I could live without this person. We're so bound up we can't even begin to think of our lives without them. It's something we don't even really want to think about. And yet at the same time, to some extent, you have to plan for those things and you have to think about those things. Because it's good and it's wonderful and we depended upon one another. But I know some. I know I have to face the reality that it could happen. Now, by the way, you know this woman that Paul uses as an illustration, maybe she was thinking, I can't wait till this guy falls asleep and doesn't wake up. I had a daughter once that came to me and was crying, and she was engaged to be married, and why? And Well, I, I see that there's not marriage in heaven, and I can't think of not being married to this man the rest of my life. And I said, oh, listen, look, I know that that's something that you're holding on to, but I mean, for every two or three women that are holding on to the hope that they can marry their husband or ever, there's seven women that are just holding on to the promise that it ends at death. You know, this is over. So don't take that hope away from them. You know, this is just enjoy what you got for now. No, I, it'll be an awful day. It'll be an awful day when the day when our marriage to one or another ends and I become a widower, my wife becomes a widow. It's not something in any way we're looking forward to. and We don't like to think about it, but it could happen. We have to face the reality. But here's what I want to say. There's a relationship I have that's far more deep and far more wonderful that I could never imagine being without, and I don't have to imagine it. It's my relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. I am His and He is mine. Forever I am His and He is mine. And but I know the reality may come when I'm not going to be married one day to my wife. 
I don't want to face it, but I'll live with it. But I can never imagine, and I will never have to face the idea of being parted from my Savior. Never. So deep and profound and so wonderful. And you know what? There is a nearness that my wife and enjoy that no one else knows. There's a language we have between one another that no one else appreciates. There's a, a window no one has looked into and upon our lives. And just in terms of our relationship and our intimacy with one another, there's a bond that we have. But however near it is, not so near as I have a relationship with my Savior Jesus. He lives inside of me by His Holy Spirit. And He opened up His heart when He died for me. And He placed me in Himself so that I'm in Him. Such a beautiful, profound, mysterious mystery. Nothing near. Nothing near. The Lord Jesus is nearer to me than my very breath. He lives and He abides with me. And I commune with Him. And As a result... I have a relationship with the one who I don't go to the law to follow the law to somehow measure up and meet him and please him and somehow kowtow to an external standard. I go to the law and I love the law because I love the one who inspired that law. And the one who inspired that law lives in me. And that law is an expression of his character. And I want to know him better and I want to experience him better. And so in the law, I find a trysting place, a meeting place where I get to know him and experience him at deeper and deeper levels. So I enjoy the law, but I enjoy the law in a way that I could never have enjoyed the law when I was apart from Christ. Never have experienced the law when I was unsaved. It changed the whole relationship. Now it doesn't stand over me and say, unfit, unfit, unfit. It stands over me and it comes before me and says, come, encounter me and know me and enjoy me and experience my life and let's live this life together as I abide in you and you abide in me. Married to him. Married to him. That's the language it's being said. This is something that these Christians were forgetting. They thought that they couldn't be saved by the law, but then they thought, now I'll just take the law and I'll just start following its rules and I'll be holy and I'll be sanctified by the law and I'll just live under its measures. And what they'd find when they did it was it just coming back, and Paul will say this later, unfit, unfit, unfit. Instead of seeing that the law was a place where they Enjoyed, it was like a communal gathering point which God opens up his life and reveals himself and they can experience him and enjoy him. And Well, it's the next thing you see here. There's a new fruit that's characterized in that relationship. Romans 7, 4b says, that you may, you've risen with Christ, that you may be married to another, to him who was raised from the dead, that you should bear fruit to God. Now that fruit that it's referring to is not having children, it's not bringing other people to Jesus Christ. It's, it's talking about the fruit of a developing character in your life that's born out of this new and wonderful relationship you have with Christ. The wedding gift that the Lord Jesus gives to the Christian is His Holy Spirit. And He pours His Spirit upon us so that the Spirit would dwell in us and would produce His own fruitfulness and His own life through us. And that's what it's referring to, this new character that's beginning to come up within us. Now again, when I became a husband, my life began to change. It was a relationship that I'd never known in my life prior to that. Prior to that, all my relationships to a large extent were relationships of competition. You know, I wanted to prove myself to my parents. I wanted to prove and I wanted to compete against my playmates and my schoolmates, whether it was in the school grounds or whether it was on the playground or whether it was in the classroom. There was a competition that was going on. And when you got out of school and you're walking home from school, you told tall tales to one another and you're always trying to think of a better tale or a better joke. It was constant competition. 
And this was happening in the, with my siblings as well. There was a competition that was going on in the back seat. And sometimes that competition would get pretty crazy. And, you know, dad would wrench his arm out of the socket as he's reaching back, trying to grab you and tell you to calm down. And competition. Just trying to prove yourself. And then you marry someone and you realize you're not in competition with her. You're not trying to win. You're not trying to gain the upper hand. You've actually been bound to her so that she's not a competitor, but she's a part of you. And you live to give yourself to her, and she lives to give herself to you. And well, I'm not saying that's easy, but love draws you by this way into a whole development of character. And when you're wed to Christ and you're bound to Christ and He pours His Spirit within you, you're no longer in a contention with God. Before that, you are. The Spirit of God is actually contending with you to convince you of your sin and your lack of righteousness and the judgment you're facing. But once you're in a relationship with Him, you're no longer contending with Him. You're in cooperation with Him as He works to develop more and more of His likeness in you. Listen to Galatians 5, 22 and 23 along these lines. And it points out the relationship to the law has changed. Galatians 5, 22 and 23, speaking of fruit, the fruit of the Spirit. But the fruit of the Spirit is love. This is what the Spirit brings to it, the Spirit that Christ gives to the person who has believed and trusted in Him. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering or patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. There's no law that has to be imposed upon you to suppress those things. The law is not against you. Here's what it is. There's no law against us. So you know what? There is a law for these things. There's a rules and commandments God gives in order to stimulate and let those things grow so they might flourish and grow because it's the growth and expression of the character God wants to form in you so you flourish in your life and His power and His life. And it's, it's no longer a thing that's drawing barriers to prohibit us and restrain us. It becomes instead a rule that guides the development of our character and channels the expressions of our wonderful, deep, mysterious communion with Jesus Christ. Third, this also results in a spirit-guided service that's expressed in that relationship. So Romans 7, 6 says this, But now we have been delivered from the law, that relationship to the law here is what we're talking about, that a repressive relationship to the law, and that law that comes to speak of our unfitness and of our sin and of our judgment. We have been delivered from the law, having died to what we were held by, so that we should serve in the newness of the Spirit, not in the oldness of the letter. There's a new Spirit that is alive within us, and it, it shapes within us an instinct and responsiveness of service. Of service. I, we're on the topic of marriage, and I can't speak to you about other people's marriages, so I have to use illustrations from my own marriage. But as I was looking at this passage and at this section, I remember when we were first married. I was pastoring my first church, and it was a church that was full of a lot of young families and a lot of young couples and a lot of young wives and young husbands, and I was one of those. Our home was in a manse that was on the property where the church was, and the church was a very active church. I was an assistant pastor, and the pastor's philosophy was he wanted that place buzzing all the time. So there's always activity going on there, and always programs, and always things taking place. And I was there in my office, and every lunchtime, my wife would come over with lunch for me. 
And it was a plate of food that was laid out wonderfully. I mean, you know, the sandwich would be cut perfectly. Everything was adorned wonderfully. There was a garnish on it. There would be a drink on it, be on a platter, and she'd come bring it to me. And, <laughs> you know, it was just very sweet and very nice, and I'd eat the meal. And, and what I didn't know was uh, all the other young mothers that were watching her bring this plate of her were getting more and more resentful and bitter. And so eventually... <laughs> They confronted her that she needed to stop doing this because, you know, he can go over to the house and make his own sandwich. He lives close enough that he can go over and make his own lunch, and you make him make his own lunch. And if you're going to do that, then you ought to at least barter with him. If you're going to have him do that, then he ought to give you some free time when he's babysitting the kids so you can have a girl's night out. Or, well, you may ought to make him do the laundry sometime. You ought to make him do the dishes sometime. And <laughs> she was rather stunned by the disapproval. All she could say is, I love serving him. I love serving him. That's what the Spirit gives birth to in a relationship with Jesus. We just love to serve him. It's not a burden to us. We're not bartering with him. We're not trying to gain anything from him. I'll do this and this and I'll get your approval and then maybe you'll get me this new blessing or that thing. No, I, I just love to serve him. I've been captivated by his grace and by his love. And I don't know actually why my wife wanted to do that for me because I wasn't. That was an instinct of the Spirit upon her because I wasn't the one drawing it out for my guarantee. But oh, with our Savior Jesus, as you come to know him and experience him, he draws out from us an instinct to want to serve him and please him because he's so wonderful and he's so good and he's so beautiful and he's and you'll never, you'll never be able to outgive him. You'll never be able to outserve him. But you don't serve because you're trying to get something. You serve because you're pouring it out of the richness of the life of everything that he's given to you and that he gives you. You serve him. J. Vernon McGee shares a little poem that he says he carried in his Bible when he was a student in college. It reads like this. I do not work my soul to save. That work my Lord hath done. But I will work like any slave. For love of God's dear son. I'm going to serve him. Now, does the law of God, the moral law, have its place in this marriage that we have with Christ? Is this the fruit of growing character? Is this the fruit of spirit-authored service? Does it have a place in bringing us into that fruit and bringing us into that service? And I want to say it most definitely does, but it's no longer to be carried out as an exercise of our flesh, as an exercise of I'll show God how well I can serve him and I'll show God how fruitful and good I can be and I'll measure up. No, it will just say unfit, unfit, unfit if you take that direction. No, it's an exercise not of fulfilling an obligation, not of proving yourself, not of wiping out some voice of conscience or condemnation against you. It's, it comes to you as this free disposal and direction it comes to you, directing you into the fullness and the enabling and the empowering and the gracious life of God that's poured out on you because the law now becomes a funnel in which it pours out upon us God's grace and directs us into God's grace because you're not under the law to restrain you and restrict you. You're under grace, the outpouring life of God and your relationship with Him so you can serve Him and glorify Him. So I just have a couple questions I wrote down at the end that you can just meditate on. What should a marriage to Christ look like in my life? What should a marriage to Christ look like in my life? What should be the spring of motivation 
for those who secure in that married relationship with Christ? What should the spring of motivation be for the one who secured in a marriage relationship with the Lord Jesus? What should characterize that relationship? What character will be shaped in that loving relationship? What will sustain the service that I bring to him in that relationship? What will sustain it? Let's bow our heads. Oh God, we confess that we revert back to the law as a place and a ground to prove ourselves. And you've delivered us from those things. You have a design, oh God, that our obedience might be more instinctive of the life of the Spirit. Not pursuing the energies and powers of the flesh. The flesh will never agree with the law. But oh, because we've been made new in Jesus Christ, the, the Spirit, the Spirit, gladly embraces it. But embraces it as a rising point, a point to lift up and rejoice and express the exuberance of our life with you. But it's you we have our eyes upon. It's you we love. Oh God, teach us to, even here, look to the law giver. To delight in his perfections and his beauty and his character. To see the contours of his grace coming down to touch our lives. Wanting to love you. And letting you, oh God, through that grace pour into us and pour out from us and back to you a love that will never end. It's a mystery of God, but one we must explore more deeply and give ourselves to holy. By your spirit when you do that. In Jesus' name, amen.